The mystics say we are all connected. Maybe we'll never meet. Maybe we have completely different lives. But we're all part of a web of relationships, each of us a spark in the darkness. In 2008, I got lucky with an artist residency in an empty floor of a Wall Street office building. I was there to write songs, but I couldn't ignore the great recession unfolding all around me. Then Bernie Madoff turned himself in. Again with Wall Street and the news today isn't getting any better. Everyone thought they knew the story. Madoff promised tons of cash and greedy investors bought in. Hello. But I had a feeling that was too easy. I couldn't stop investigating and singing about the questions that haunted me. Holy sh! I'm one degree from Bernie Madoff! I was a Jewish person wrestling with someone from my own tribe. You don't say Kaddish for someone who's alive. Except in one extremely rare case. Finding myself in places I never thought I'd be. How do we cut through the lies and deception around us and find our way back to empathy and understanding? To gather the scattered sparks of light and make beauty out of the brokenness. This is Weird Religion, a podcast for people who know religion is weird, but love it anyway. My name is Brian Doak. I'm a professor and biblical scholar. And after all this time, my official position is still that we should not have gotten a dog. Oh, <laughs> my name is Leah Payne. I'm a historian, author, professor, and I'm a longtime fan of synchronized swimming musicals. Love Esther Williams. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Today, we're talking to the star creator and the director of a very weird religion-ish new film called A Kaddish for Bernie Madoff. The film tells a story of the biggest financial fraud in history through the eyes of a musician and poet who worked across the street from Bernie Madoff and became obsessed not only with the crime itself, but also with its spiritual implications. We have the director here in studio so and, the, and the actor on Zoom, and we're so excited. We are. Join us. Join us. Um. <laughs> okay. Uh, Okay, so first we should do some introductions. Do you think we should introduce? Yes. <laughs> that was a stunning transition. Um, Alicia Jo Rabins is a writer, musician, composer, performer, and Torah teacher, kind of like an everything person. She creates multi-genre works of experimental beauty, which explore the intersection of ancient wisdom texts with everyday life. She's the creator and star of Kaddish for Bernie Madoff. She's on Zoom with us, Alicia Jo Rabins. Welcome. Thank you so much. And Alicia J. Rose is a filmmaker based in Portland, our home. She does photography, commercials, TV, music videos, and a host of super talented things. She is the director of Kaddish for Bernie Madoff. Thank you so much for joining us, both of you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I wanted to ask as, as a joke, just to begin, if you began working together like a mystical vibe thing because you had the same name, which isn't that funny, okay, but like, oh, here's another person named Alicia. But then I read that you actually met when one of you received an, a confused email from someone trying to reach the other Alicia. Is that That's is that actually true? Exactly. Yes, I That's received true. an email and it's so odd because we have basically the same name and we're both musicians and just some person had us both in their contacts and tried to email Alicia Rose and my name popped up and they clicked enter. <laughs> and so the email almost made sense because it was like, did make, you know, it was about music and stuff, but then I was like, this is not for me. And then fortunately my husband uh, is a kind of longtime Portlander and has known Alicia Rose a lot, a lot longer. <laughs> and I was like, what is going on? He's like, oh yeah, I, I know, I know who that's for. <laughs> so, so then I tracked her down and forwarded it. And <laughs> that's, that's became a collaboration. Um, although it took a few years for us to actually meet. It was fate then. Yes. I, I, so how did you two start talking with each other about this film? 
Well, I had originally created this film in the form of a stage show. So it was not a film. It was a one woman show. Um, and it began when I was living in New York. I started creating it back in 2010. And the first version premiered at Joe's Pub in 2012. And then I moved out to Portland and kept developing it still as a, a stage show. And then after touring it for a few years, I was just ready to stop performing this particular show because I had other projects I wanted to work on. So I wanted to do a really great documentation of it and have somebody film film a live performance just so that it didn't like disappear into the ether because I had been working on it for so long and I actually honestly hired somebody to do that <laughs> and then I thought well it would be really cool if there was some kind of Netflix comedy special vibe where something happens before and then something happens after where it's not just like cameras on a stage and this like wonderful videographer that I had hired was like well I'm a videographer I don't really do that kind of stuff um, and so I thought, okay, I got to hire somebody to consult with us to give us some ideas of just how we could have an intro outro that would give it a little bit of an arc. And I thought, oh, the person who I got that email for, <laughs> <laughs> because I had actually watched her amazing web series, The Benefits of Guzbandry, and it was such like snappy, sharp, like engaging yes. storytelling. Yes. And I thought, that's what I want to bring this, you know, this, the story of Akata Shabrini Madoff is kind of like meditative and mystical and vibey. And I really wanted to like give it that yeah. punchiness. And so I thought, oh, she'd be perfect. Yeah. So I kind of cold emailed her <laughs> and was like, can Truth. I like hire you for three hours to watch some footage of a show I did once and come in and meet with me and the videographer <laughs> to uh, suggest what we might do to punch it up a little bit. And she came over and was like, if you want to hear what I really think, I really think you should just make a real movie out of it instead of just adding a beginning and an ending. And basically by the end of that hour, um, I mean, she says she didn't mean to pitch to pitch actually doing that with me, but by the end of the hour, we we're like, okay, this is happening. And the videographer was like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Like, yeah. It was very generous. <laughs> Especially to bring something like a comedic kind of sharper, you know, movement to it. I mean, the, the film's contents could threaten to go really dark if you didn't mm -hmm, have exactly. that. I wonder, um, Alicia, the director, Alicia Rose, could you, just for people who are maybe listening to this, who want to just get a basic outline of the plot of this thing yeah. so that we can then deep dive into some stuff. How would you describe the plot of this? Just like what happens enough to know so that, enough so that a listener could hear us talk about it. Well, I'm going to take this off. Ajo, she lived this story. And so it, it came to me as this one woman show, as she mentioned, and the plot was in the one woman show. She was in front of a screen and telling the story of her experience in New York at this residency, um, you know, which her creative intent basically got hijacked by the financial crisis and even further hijacked um, by Bernie Madoff. She had a residency on Wall Street in an abandoned office space. It's a weird place for an artist to be. So her the story kind of tracks that, tracks that residency, tracks her experience amazing, making the art, but it also, more importantly, tracks her imagination and her sort of flights into fantasy and you know her writing of the songs, but her becoming the character. So th the live show was a lot simpler. So I, I already was an artist who um, was working also as a Jewish educator. So I did a lot of work at the intersection of spirituality and feminism and women's studies and, and art. Um, and I actually have a project that's about, it's a song cycle about women in the Torah. So that's what I thought I was going to work on when I got to this residency on Wall Street. Um, and then the financial collapse happened and Bernie Madoff, his scam was revealed. And if you you know, are younger and don't know who, who he was or wasn't, weren't following. It's the biggest financial fraud that we know about in human history. So he basically did a, like the biggest imaginable uh, Ponzi scheme and sort of defrauded people out of like, depending on how you count, maybe like $65 billion, just huge, huge went, went for decades. And he is uh, unfortunately a member of my tribe. He's Jewish and he's Ashkenazi Jewish. So he's from Eastern Euro Europe, like my family is. And he literally looked like my dad. <laughs> so I saw him in the newspaper, this like terrible criminal. And I had this like involuntary positive response to just like the shape of his eyes because they looked like my father's eyes, you know, and my dad's great, fortunately. Um, and that kind of triggered uh, this like obsession in me that slowly grew and grew and grew to try to understand like, what do I do as a Jewish person when somebody from my own group um, does something so terrible? Is there a way to like, 
you know, how do you balance sort of like compassion in general with just like, maybe I would have done the same thing in his place. Who knows? Just the human compassion with the opposite, which is like, there are lines that you can't cross and there's amounts of pain that you can cause people that really require clear consequences, maybe to the point of like excommunication and maybe actually saying you're not one of us anymore, especially in a case like Madoff where he didn't really convincingly apologize. (laughs) Um, Maybe that there needs to be a mechanism for that. And I kind of discovered that there is historically, um, you know, a pretty robust tradition of excommunication within Judaism, even though we don't always think of it that way in contemporary Judaism. And one of the key parts of excommunicating someone is to recite that mourner's Kaddish, the prayer for the dead. Even though they're alive, you're basically mourning them and cutting them off. And if you saw them in the street, you wouldn't um, even acknowledge them. So it's like they're completely dead to you. And so the film sort of tells the story of me exploring these ideas through... finding out that I'm one degree away from Madoff in a lot of ways and going to interview all these people who, you know, an artist friend is like, oh, my uncle's an FBI agent who worked on the case and like packed up the boxes. And so I interviewed, literally interviewed this FBI agent about like, what was it like to be in the office where the fraud happened, packing up the boxes. And, um, you know, one of my parents kind of friend of friends uh, was a financial risk advisor who advised her bank against investing with Madoff because there are all these red flags she noticed. And um, they basically wanted to fire her because of that. They were so upset that they had finally gotten an in with this, you know, fund and she was refusing to green light it because it made no sense. Um, so I essentially interviewed all these people and then I turned the interviews into songs. And that, and so the, the, the film tells the story of me traveling around the city and I can kind of become all of these characters and sort of share what I learn in their voices in these rock songs. In um, costume. In costume. <laughs> With song costume. and dance. And throughout that time, I'm also beginning to create the piece itself and kind of working it out for my fellow artist residents in this Wall Street space. Um, and starting to investigate like creating contemporary rituals of excommunication, which we're sort of testing out in this artist space. So it's sort of like where art and theater and spiritual practice all all meet. You know, yeah, I want to jump in here about that because a lot of our listeners are grad students or mm-hmm. um, religion educators. And I think this would be a great film to assign for a class on religious studies because Mm. kind of the centerpiece of this is a religious experience, the Kaddish, a Jewish prayer for the dead. And that to me was so fascinating. There's something here for religion scholars of every kind, because Mm. it it's at the intersection of like your personal experience and journey. And then also like ethnic identity and religion in the U S I mean, but I have to ask you, um, so I, I, I recently started watching Billions and um, <laughs> and then like lots of other films about the financial world are ultra masculine, mm. um, you know, like with very stereotypical dude energy. And this film, one of the first things that struck me was how woman centric mm. and how feminine it is. Um and like all, a lot of the imagery, like the um, the swimming, the mm-hmm. synchronized swimming, which I loved. Um, so I'd love to hear from both of you. Was that a central theme in creating this film? And how was that in the, the financial industry? Just in my research, as I was obsessed with Madoff and, and researching it, I, I realized and found out that the women on Wall Street were really the ones who saw through his scam. Um, and there's, there's stuff that you can read about this, um, but it seems that because they were on Wall Street having to sort of prove themselves all the time and they hadn't just been like grandfathered in <laughs> um, and they, everyone was always skeptical about them, they had to work harder and kind of be a little bit smarter than everyone else. And they were really looking at the numbers and using their brains and not just sort of being like, this guy seems cool, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so that was one thing. And also in terms of just feminist spirituality in general, I think the idea of ritual innovation and sort of filling some of the gaps of, um, you know, in Jewish tradition, so many of the laws and rituals were kind of passed down in our texts, which were written down by men. And there's just such a strong sense and plenty of research showing 
all of the other layer of rituals that were happening in homes and among women and, and around childbirth and it just all of this sort of right. domestic and healing and spiritual right. um, ritual that was happening that didn't necessarily get codified in that same way that was seen more as folk tradition, but I think huh. filled really legitimate spiritual needs. So we wanted to um, I mean, it wasn't like we set out to do that, but I think just intuitively, that's where we live. We're sort of like mm-hmm. witchy Jewish women. And that's <laughs> a lot of the, where I teach is in that space too. So we ended up sort of doing that for real <laughs> in the show. I think it intuitively happened on some level because we are Jewish feminists without trying to be Jewish feminists. And so when we set out to interpret this and turn it into a film, we just inherently went toward a, a like a more feminine populated view. It made sense to us to have, you know, um, three female crones surrounding Ajo and have that be the bait dean instead of three men or to have the the Kaddish being recited by 30 elderly, elder-ish, or not elder, a combination of ages of women around the pool. People who haven't seen the film are like, what are you talking about? But um, we really, we, we brought a very feminine, a very female element into places where in, in the Jewish religion, Jewish culture, are, they're typically populated by men. We didn't mean to do that. We just did it because that's the way we see it and that's the way we live it. And I think that's kind of an interesting side effect of who we are. I wondered myself, I mean, maybe this is like getting like too deep with it. I, like, is there something gendered about the crime itself? Like, is the crime he committed somehow like in some weird world, like a distinctly male crime that Bernie hmm. Madoff did? And does the film almost posit, I thought does the film posit the solution to that crime as almost like an inherently female solution hmm. or is that the wrong way to think about it? I would love to read a paper on that. That was <laughs> It's not, I mean, I, I'm fascinated by that idea. I mean, I do think that women are equally capable of uh, committing heinous scams. And I mean, this was essentially, you know, um, one of the things I found in my research, what found, or I learned in my research was that um, scholars of Ponzi schemes and pyramid schemes, call them affinity schemes. I talk about this in the film, but essentially the, the whole way those work is that you, um, you sort of defraud the people who are most like you and closest to you, which is why there were so many mm-hmm. Jewish victims of uh, Madoff's crimes. And mostly the men probably in charge of the family finances um, or the, you know, male accountant, because it went on for 40 years, probably. So we're talking about like the 60s, mm. 70s, you know, when it was starting. So it's a very old school kind of financial world where it really had its roots in. And I, so I, I could kind of imagine something similar happening in a world of women, but it would be a very different thing. And I think the fact that the men held all the financial so much of the financial power just in kind of mainstream American culture at those times did, I think, make it a masculine crime in a lot of ways. One of the things that really struck me as I was watching this, and I got so sucked in, by the way, so <laughs> well done, I um, was how how difficult it is to talk about a crime this size, you know, the scope mm. of it. I mean, you you said... 60 something billion dollars, which is just, I can't really even understand it, you know, intellectually. And then I was thinking about, and you talked a little bit about this, the, the ancient language that you use to address this huge thing. Did you Mm. find that those old words of like cursing and (laughs) blessing, how did you come to that? Because it strikes me as the language that's up to the task, you know, how, how can you describe that process? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'll just say really briefly that I grew up in a very non-observant Jewish home and I came to Jewish um, texts and traditions and, and relative observance later in college. And then I went to Jerusalem and went to yeshiva for two years and became super immersed. And I think one of the things that drew me to change changed my life so extremely in my early twenties was that I, I felt these huge forces around me, um, which I think are evident just every day in all kinds of ways. And I didn't feel, I felt overwhelmed by them and I didn't feel like I had language or tools to deal with them or comprehend them. And, and I did feel that, um, ancient spiritual practice. And for me, my, that was, you know, Judaism, cause that's the tradition that I was kind of born into, um, 
but they all do this. I think um, that's one of the beautiful things is that it's so huge that it can hold um, the biggest ideas and the biggest pain and the biggest joy. Um, it can can work on this level that's hugely structural, but also so personal. And that's kind of always what I'm what I'm looking for. It's like, how do I, as this one little speck of humanity, make sense of my relationship to these huge forces? Um, so that I think that in a lot of ways that is kind of like at the heart of of everything that I do, and and certainly looking at Jewish traditions about. Um, I mean, excommunication is like in a, in one way, it's very personal. It's this one person that it's centered on. It's only touches this one person and, you know, and the community, but really it's such a huge concept. And so in the, in the course of the excommunication ritual, um, traditionally the person carrying it out would recite these biblical curses. And it does make so much sense because there are these vast curses of just um, describing all these terrible future outcomes in this really general sense, some of which oddly like literally came true in Madoff's life, which we kind of pointed to. Well, the curse thing was so haunting on that basis, right? Because the death of children is Mm -hmm. obviously the worst thing that anyone could experience. I wondered, you know, when I thought of this language of excommunication, this was me with my like history of interpretation scholar thing going, I thought of Spinoza in the 17th century Mm -hmm. who had the harem or the haram. And I was like, wow, like, how did you feel participating in something like that? Which, you know, maybe even for like, uh, you know, thoughtful Jews has like even an ugly history. Cause like, should Spinoza have been excommunicated for like thinking and talking? I mean, maybe he was an atheist. Like, I don't know, but like, you know, like what was it like to, I mean, you're participating in a pretty serious thing when you do that. Right. On film. Absolutely. Um, I mean, <laughs> on forever. Film, yes. <laughs> yeah. On film. What, but I think on film is a really important uh, two words to add because I, you know, there was a juncture in my life when I felt like, do I go to rabbinical school or do I just get a master's in Jewish studies? And I really consciously chose to get a master's because I thought I want to be able to do things like excommunicate people on film, which I didn't really <laughs> do at that point without like, without actually doing it. You know, like I don't want to have the chutzpah to, to literally excommunicate anyone. That's not really my vibe, but I do want to think about it and propose it and consider it. Um, so yeah. And I, and I like to think this would be like a positive version of what happened with <laughs> Spinoza, hopefully, you know, that like, it is the same idea that there's something that, like I said before, that you can do that is so outside the bounds of what is okay, that the community has to say, well, you can't do that and be in our community. Um, I think personally, atheism, fine, like $65 billion of theft, not, you know? <laughs> well, and I think there's, for me, there, there was something so powerful about portraying that ritual on film and something so powerful about the biblical curses happening to make so much sense to this particular circumstance and situation. And, and, you know, one of my main impetuses for even making this into a film was not just to show or to shine a light on the history of Madoff and his crimes, but to also, you know, make a point of remembering that this happened because it's so easy to just forget. He just recently passed away. There was a few blips of press. It was gone. People are like, we don't want to remember, but I'm like, we do need to remember because affinity schemes are real. And he messed with so many people and he did indeed reap what he sowed, you know, or so, Yes. Yeah. Anyway, in the sense of the biblical curses, especially if you listen to those, it's not like those were written for him. They're biblical curses. Yet you in that moment of the film, um, for those of you who haven't seen it yet, Ajo, who is uh, the star of it, she's in sort of, you know, spiritualish witch garb um, with three crones and these biblical curses are being recited and it's it's chilling. I think it's one of the most sort of intense, dark, but not, you know, dark in a weird way but just generally dark moments in the film where you're like holy crap you know (laughs) he really did receive the end of the biblical curses he made all these choices they were horrible and his kids did die and things did stop happening and his life ended in a way because he committed these crimes so so it's universal in a way but so specific in this circumstance dear bernie You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The calves of your herd will be cursed and the lambs of your flock. You will be cursed going in and cursed coming out. You will come to ruin because of the evil you have done. Day after day, you'll be oppressed and robbed. 
You wrote so much seed in the field, but you will harvest little because locusts will devour it. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink the wine or harvest the grapes because the worms will eat them. You will have children, but you will not keep them. out to me um were scenes with old people um you know <laughs> we had plenty of them phew yes and and i really I, I don't know that really struck me the the long term pain mm. um and also i don't know if you both felt this way but the celebration of the old absolutely um, it felt very beautiful to me i'd love to hear your thoughts on your perspective on on the elderly in this well i'm sure ajo has a lot to say about this but i will just start in saying that i think we both realized in making this that one of the things we wanted to really express what in terms of one of the things we care about and are worried about is there's just no system for taking care of the elderly in our culture and something like madoff uh, his crimes the way he treated it, it just ruined the lives of so many older people who thought they were set and then they really weren't. And then the generations are coming after them who are no longer set. And, and so in, in a, in a culture where we don't take care of the elderly, there really is no system. You know, my parents are in their eighties and still working. They don't know how to stop. They don't know if they can stop, you, you know, how do we deal with that? And so I think representing them in a way as a voice in the film helped kind of make that specific to sort of the understanding of the process and her process as an artist, but also just as a culture, as a society, how do we address this? And, and, and having that be a part of the film, you know, represented by actual older people, senior citizens that really exist, we thought that was really important. Ajo, what do you think? Yeah, well, on a personal level, I will say that my, my, my father, who I mentioned before, um, <laughs> is a um, retired geriatric psychiatrist. And so <laughs> we grew up talking and my mother um, is a retired um, hospice social worker. So we really grew up with like end of life was very mm. real for us. It was like, that's what we talked about at the dinner table. <laughs> and it, was, it was not a world where we were like, we're young. We don't think about that stuff. It was always like, this is, this is the cycle of life. And this is where we're all kind of heading towards and we need to take care of people and, you know, um, and I think that that really shaped my outlook in a lot of ways. And I think that is one of the, one of those things that again, draws me to spiritual practice is the way that it's, it's really like a cradle to grave kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think so much of contemporary American culture is like a blip, like this moment and, you know, specific, you know, youth culture and beauty culture. Mm -hmm. And, um, we're just so oriented that way as a culture in general, as American culture, uh, especially secular American culture. And I've always felt like I'm sort of like a <laughs> crone, <laughs> slowly growing into my croneness. CIT, crone in training. More, yeah, exactly. More every year. Um, I and, love and that. on the other hand, I will say that there's, there's a lot of respect in Jewish culture traditionally for like, you know, for the older men. And I'm not talking the kind of Judaism that I live today is very progressive and is, is very gender. There's a lot of, you know, tremendous feminism and gender parity, um, but traditionally and still in the more um, kind of um, orthodox disciplines, um, there's this focus of sort of spiritual power in the, in the older men who mm -hmm. deserve a lot of respect, obviously, but we really want to balance that out by looking at the spiritual power, power in, in like the, you know, grandmother generation of, of women. And so when we had those three, we called them the crones in a very loving way. And so when we, when we have the three crones in the excommunication ritual, the idea is that they kind of stand in for what, what in traditional Judaism would be three men um, called a bait dean, which sort of a stand in for like a, a court that, three respected, learned kind of elders um, need to come together for matters of great import of the community to kind of uh, agree and allow something to move forward. So we're like, well, let's, you know, these women are going to do that. So this, this takes me to, I, I had so many favorite musical moments, just even as music, <laughs> the film is fun to watch just as music. I think my favorite as music was the, um, the therapist song. Oh. I just thought that that was just a good pop song. Hey. 
like and you're playing the electric guitar and I just got an electric guitar so I was like I wish I could do that <laughs> so there was some fantasy there but but the okay so the monk song yikes I to me it's like okay you've got the words of the monk saying and correct me if I have this idea wrong but something like what does Bernie represent spiritually he's like a fake messiah the mm. messiah promises perfection up and to the right 45 degree angle up never stop this this narrative of total orientation total success as opposed to the story that you tell, which is in a way, it's a narrative of disorientation where it's not success. But the, the, the lowest moment for me, okay, care to comment, was <laughs> when you, you have this lyric in this monk song toward the end where you're talking about the money and you say something like, all this money came from nothing. And I was like, over the last 100 years, and I was like, oh, dang it. If it came from nothing... <laughs> And if it's true that like we just as people, I don't even know, like, is this spiritually true or just true? We're like, you just pay for everything. Like, we're going to pay for everything. He paid for mm -hmm. everything and I'm going to pay for everything. It's going to come back somehow. Like as a culture, if we just did this thing with money and it was all made out of nothing, we're going to have to give it all back. Not just him. I talked to a Buddhist monk the other day. He also happens to be a Jew. I thought maybe he could help me. And he said, You could almost say Madoff was delivering the Messiah. This is the era of perfection. The faithful will enter into it. But in Judaism, the Messiah is in the future. And as for you, Alicia, you want me to explain this, but you can't understand what happened without looking at yourself, your own desire for control. Your wish to succeed, to be safe, never to stumble, never to fail. We live in a time when it's easy to believe that a life without loss might be possible. One of the themes that really came out for me, both personally and artistically, while I was creating the piece was... Um, kind of symbolized by what you mentioned, that 45 degree angle. And one of the, in, it's a little bit wonky, but I think it's really significant that Madoff's returns were not super high. So a lot of people assumed that investors were greedy and they wanted these really high returns. So they just overlooked these red flags, but actually they were matching the market average. They were not high returns. They just didn't go up and down like that normal stock market line. If you plot it on a graph, they just went straight up because he was making up the numbers after the trading day ended. <laughs> and so he was, he was plotting it himself and he kind of had this genius to know it'll be too obvious. I mean, evil genius, but it's too <laughs> obvious if the returns are too high, people will know that that's impossible. But if they just match the average, but they never fall. They don't give people that sense of like, uh-oh, I made a bad investment. Uh-oh, I, I lost money, even though it's all kind of an illusion, you know? So I just found that so spiritually captivating. And in a way, I actually found it reassuring to think about, um, like, there's a sense of like, when you're just like, I'm not, I'm not going to get old. I'm, I'm not going to ever fail. I'm, I'm not going to get wrinkles. I'm not, whatever it is that you're sort of like trying to hold off. That is just the inevitability of life. It's sort of like, that's the ride we're on is the mm. ups and downs. And it's, that's being in an organic system, which is, you know, a body and the stock market reflects that with its ups and downs. And so I really loved um, that perspective that, that the monk was sharing that, that um, we, 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 especially as Americans, I think, do have this, you know, infinite expansion fantasy and this idea that the economy is just going to expand, expand, expand forever, which is sort of like, oh, we're going to also cryogenically, you know, the billionaires will freeze <laughs> themselves and they'll never have to die. We'll never die. And, and we'll develop all the land and there will never be any kind of consequence with like all the wild animals that get forced out of their, you know, jungles and things. All of those um, patterns of pushing out and out and never letting things come back in, never having like, you know, kind of that, that sabbatical <laughs> Sabbath rest part. But, um, so I think I see it a little less depressingly, maybe, um, <laughs> a and a, li a little less of like, I, I want to try to embrace failure and downturn as part of the ride, as opposed to trying to like hold it off. Okay. Brian does love the doom narrative, but I'm going to try and flip it around to respond to what you said, because I'd love to hear from both of you on this. I heard um, a woman who wrote about menopause, about the female experience <laughs> is for most of our lives, very cyclical. Like to be a woman is to just be in this constant mm. 
cycle, literally, physically in your body. And it, I remember that moment because it's beautifully depicted where you show the the consistent returns. Mm-hmm. And I thought how fitting it is that it's these women who are saying like, no, 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 that's not the natural order of things, right? That there is always a cycle, like things are turning over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear any thoughts you have on that. On menopause or the, <laughs> yeah, just talk about menopause, just freely in any direction that you, um, that you desire. I'll, I'll stay out of it. Let's go. <laughs> Where to go. Um, well, I'll, I'll say something not about menopause, um, but, uh, you know, it, life is cyclical. And, and I think that, you know, Ajo, Ajo mentioned the idea of sort of people just wanting to go up and up and up and to constantly make money and to never fail. And, and I was really drawn to her story and to the narrative in the film because it just shines a light on the fantasy and that the fantasy isn't going to make you happy. If you think that the only happiness is more, you're going to be miserable. But to accept that, you know, that failure is as important and inherent to survival and happiness as success is huge. And I think we struggle with that, especially earlier in life when we go through ups and downs and we're in our 20s or 30s and we're like, oh, my life is over. Oh, my life is great. But then as you, you know, as you get toward the more crone-like years, shall we say, and you realize that, you know, cycles are inevitable and, you know, it's birth, life, death with within your body, outside your body and the people that don't make it to where you are today and those that survive you. So, you know, we all get caught up in that rat race, right? That's survival. And I think especially in America, where there's so much consumerism and capitalism and the race to achieve more is sometimes, you know, put above literally surviving and eating and having food. And and going through a year of pandemic reality was really humbling and interesting within the scope of that because we all had to accept a certain kind of failure, like a failure of ambition, a pause in our momentum. And so, you know, I think there's some interesting connections. We didn't mean to have those connections within the movie. We made the movie. We filmed it before, right before the pandemic happened. Literally, we finished filming in November of 2019. We started post in December and January. By March, it was the pandemic. We had almost pushed filming, part of filming in New York into March of 2020. We're glad that we didn't. So, you know... I, I think that there's so much wisdom. And for me, it was as much meditation and edit and the, also the editor and editing that part of the movie and even just accepting part of the story. Like everybody, you can't just always go up, you know, and, and accepting the failures, accepting the moments that bring you down as the moments in some ways that teach you the most mm. is a huge part of life. And I felt like that was so well reflected in Ajo's story and something we could sort of come toward the end of the movie with, with the Monk song and the new song, which happens right before Monk, which we call um, Dear Bernie, which is her sort of addressing. So, so people who haven't seen the film, Bernie Madoff isn't actually in the film, but there are very creative interpretations of him. There are projections of him. Mm-hmm. He comes to life like in an animated way and kind of interacts with Ajo. Um, in the film and so we wanted to just like put that out there that it's all kind of this ultimate game that we're playing and if you can accept the lack and the failure you can accept the happiness you kind of don't get one without the other well that song for bernie probably is as sympathetic as for me as a viewer as i could feel for him like in that moment so you did a really good job of that i thought also this up and down thing it's also an artist thing too Mm -hmm. right like Mm -hmm. you make something it's working Mm. i wondered just asking on a broader level like what does it feel like on a basic artistic level to create (laughs) something that people care about like people Mm. out of nowhere texting or calling you maybe people (laughs) recognize you who wouldn't have by the way before you laugh it off the atlantic there's a little article about your film in the atlantic what a cottage for bernie madoff taught me about morning by daniel pollock pelsner what i mean just a beautiful article i mean what what i don't know what, what what has this whole like roller coaster felt like for you it's amazing it's <laughs> and and i you're so right about the artistic path being that roller coaster and you know what we hear about is just as consumers as people as citizens is the successes right so we mm-hmm. hear someone on fresh air we're like oh wow they are like killing it you know and what we don't see is the like literally thousands <laughs> of no's and rejections yep. and we appreciated this but it, ultimately it's not the right fit for our whatever you oh know my gosh. um and so i think that like it's, I just, every, every 
every bit of energy that comes back in a positive way means so much to me and to us. Um, and I personally have been working on this piece for so long and it's been such a labor of love. And I, I never dreamed that it would, like, I never thought that I would work in film. It was not something that I like just conceived of because I've always been a musician and a writer. So I worked a lot in live formats. I just didn't think about film. And the fact that like, I have the blessing that Alicia Rose came to me with this idea and was willing to go on this wild journey and push me past what I, I mean, I very was a willing partner in that pushing, but um, helped me grow past where I was artistically and what I could have done before we did this. Um, to think that that resulted in something that is actually touching people is like the absolute best thing in the world for me. It's, it's pretty mind blowing. I have to say, uh, we won the audience award at, at the Ashland internet, Ashland independent film festival. Congratulations. We won the visionary award at Sarasota film festival. Tons of selections. I mean, even just being in some of these film festivals is a pretty big deal, right? But that is fascinating too. Cause it is a roller coaster. Like you get a no and then you get a yes. Then you get a no. And the big one says no. And the small one says yes. The medium one says yes. The bigger one says no. The smaller one says no. You're just like, what, what I realized, cause this is my first feature is that ultimately you have to be Zen about the yeses and the nos because people, institutions, festivals, journalists, they're going to choose to be a part of your story and your history, or they're not. Mm -hmm. They're going to resonate with what you're doing. They're going to bring it in, in, into their reality or they're not. And it's interesting, you know, like you guys resonated with it. You didn't have to have us here, but it, it made sense to you. You had questions and, and it's what's been really incredibly gratifying. I think Ajo and I are both experiencing this. When people write to us and tell us they like the film, they'd just be like, cool film, high five. They go into it. <laughs> you know, like it's, they're like, we would like, can we have a drink? We need to talk about this. We need to process with you. And I'm like, well, we made it. You probably shouldn't process with us, but you can process with somebody else. But I mean, you know, Daniel's incredible piece in the Atlantic was, I mean, we didn't expect it to be <laughs> quite as incredibly amazing. I mean, he's an amazing writer. It wasn't about that, but we didn't expect it to be like the headline of this piece. We thought it would be something about theater and, you know, uh, world coming back after the pandemic. And Ajo and I were like, we'll have no expectations. This is going to be cool that it's in the Atlantic, but it's probably going to be this little piece. And then it came out and we're both like, holy crap, we're in the headline. What? And so like, you know, Ajo's mom read it to her word by word. And my mom and was crying. like, yeah, and she was weeping. And, you know, like for me too, like my mom was like, I just, how do I, this is amazing. You know, so, so, you know, Daniel, um, the story Ajo can tell it better, but you know, he, they know each other through, through temple, through well, synagogue. We didn't, but now we oh, you didn't. Oh, now they do. But they had a connection. Do you want to tell that really quick? It's just kind of, it just, it, I think that his experience of the film and writing about it in some ways, even though it happened to come out in the Atlantic is very similar to how people are receiving the film in general. You want to mention that Asia? Oh, his, well, he has a daughter who's in the same um, Hebrew school class as my <laughs> daughter at our synagogue in, in Portland, but we hadn't met because I think um, just the, the timing of everything. And it's a pretty, we only meet every other week and it's just kind of a very program where not everybody always knows each other. Um, and yeah, and now we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. One of the things, I think it's early in the film, um, Alicia, you talk about how you just became obsessed with this story and all the details around it. And you say something like you're, you're always talking about it to your art, artistic friends. They're getting sick of her. <laughs> <laughs> I identified with that a lot because most <laughs> academics, right? You get this very strange, very specific obsession. And then it just drives everything about, you know, who you are and what you do. And I'd love to hear from both of you. How did you explain what were you you were doing <laughs> to other people? You know, you're just like deep dive into this world. And then what do you tell people? You know, you're at a cocktail party and people say, what are you doing? Yeah, the one the one liner has always been very tricky with this project. It really has. Even as a film, I didn't know what to say. I honestly, I've tried to explain this to people just to make it not. Ajo has a much longer experience because she also did the, she created it in the stage show. For me, as a filmmaker, I definitely it was confusing to explain it to people. It still is, um, but a mystical meta musical about the greatest financial fraud in history is at least intriguing enough to get people to understand that it's not going to be a dry, boring thing about the financial crash. This is a vibrant, beautiful, wild film that's part musical and part like meta 
personal memoir documentary and par- all it's a million different things. And it is hard to explain that. But I, I have told people that it is the most experimental, ex- the most accessible experimental film they'll ever see. And the nice thing about now versus before the movie came out is I can just sh- like shove the Atlantic article in their face and be like, this is what it is. I'll see you later. Read it. No, I'm just kidding. But, 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 but don't it's, talk to me. You can read about me in the Atlantic. Don't talk to me. Read about <laughs> us in the Atlantic. But, but it is nice to have reviews now. And we've had some unbelievable reviews, you know, saying crazy things like, you know, a masterpiece of an art film, like, like things that are just, I mean, it's unreal. So it's thrilling to see it received that way. But yeah, I still don't know what people to tell me, but I tell them I won an, we won an award and we're, we're okay. You know, I, I don't think it matters anymore. I think that it is what it is. And the fact that it's harder to explain maybe serves it more than we think because there's so many movies that waste people's time and at ours it's a whole of 75 minutes most assuredly does not waste the viewer's time it's a lot of fun (laughs) no it doesn't I think it's yeah well that's right we had an artist on a season long ago Tim Timmerman who was talking a visual artist who was talking with us about art and that was the first thing that he brought up was like when you're creating art just remember like you're you're asking someone to pay attention mm-hmm. to this and spend their time and don't waste people's time like mm-hmm. that. That must weigh heavily on a lot of artists heart across disciplines. Well, especially I was the editor. And so I really took it seriously. And, and, and it's funny cause uh, Angel will remember this too. I mean, this piece has morphed. The original script was maybe like uh, 35, 40 pages. It wasn't that long. We kind of evolved it, brought in a whole, like many other elements. It turned from a, I mean, I think the stage piece was about the same length, but we really had to kind of develop the script into a whole different cinematic language. So they just bust off the the screen okay just for fun here a little bit of a left turn speaking of judaism <laughs> interconnectedness the kabbalah which we haven't been talking about but you know yes, just, yes let's, let's it's in the it. film it's mystical oh, hey, just a little what do you on the side. what do you uh what do you think about the new ufo revelations <laughs> this is brian's obsession leah's trying to rip the mic away from me oh, how how ready is judaism or not ready is judaism do you think to reckon with extraterrestrial life what do you think like, is it, is it kind of like, like we've had a conversation on the show about like how, like which kind of religious expressions or not are like, would be ready to handle this idea. It could be <laughs> destructive or it could be like incredibly illuminating. Okay. Well, UFO conspiracy theorist. I just dragged it there. Yes, I did. I, I, I appreciate that question. I was not expecting it, which is, makes it extra fun. And what it makes me Something think new. of is the legend of the four who entered the orchard, which is one of the great kind of Kabbalistic legends in the Talmud. Um, these four rabbis entered the the orchard, which is uh, a, a mystical place of um, that kind of language can't even describe. And basically, three of them are kind of like fried by the experience in different ways, and only one of them comes out intact. Um, and I and I think like you know, Judaism is so, in my understanding of it, at least my version, is so focused on on this world and how we live on this world. It's like a you know tends to be less focused on what comes before this world and less focus on what comes after life and more like, here we are, let's focus on this part. And yet mysticism, like you're saying, does deal with um, energies beyond what we can name or comprehend and um, kind of angelic forces. And I'm a big fan of the winged demoness Lilith, mm-hmm. <laughs> who's probably originally pre-Israelite and then gets kind of brought into um, Jewish mysticism and, I, I, you know, negative readings for many years and positive readings more recently, which I'm, I'm a fan of. Um, so I think that this is a moment that Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism would really shine. And in a lot of more progressive Judaism, um, I think, it, you know, it's having a big resurgence in the last few decades for sure, but there was a big shift where when Jews became more assimilated, a lot of what they let go of were those mystical traditions. Cause that was the sort of, sort of, superstitious old world stuff, right? And it required a lot of expertise and a lot of like super, super nuance and was like very odd in a lot of ways. And I think now that a couple generations have passed since the major immigration patterns as a whole, so many people are hungry for that because we do want a way to interact with forces beyond what we can see. So yeah, I, I, I foresee a big uh, bump for Kabbalah if um, if the <laughs> UFOs prove to be real. <laughs> you and I totally agree, by the way, because when Brian and I have been in a long conversation about this, and he texted me the story about like that Congress is going to release a UFO report. Or mm-hmm. I don't remember all the details. And I was like, no problem for the mystics. They got exactly. it covered. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> 
I know the stuff that seems extra and then suddenly something comes up. You're like, oh, this is the only branch that can actually handle this. <laughs> <laughs> totally. They've, they're well equipped. Exactly. They've been training for millennia. <laughs> well, Alicia and Alicia, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for being so game for all of our questions. And most yeah. importantly, thank you for this extraordinary film. It was just, I, I'm going to be thinking about it for a really long time. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We're yeah, fans. Thank you so much. Where can people see this or where can people check this out or get some of the buzz around it? Like where, where, where how can we promote this for you? Well, the very first thing you should do if you're interested in seeing a cottage for Bernie Madoff and immersing yourself in the music and the mysticism and the cinematic beauty, synchronized swimming, which we didn't really mention, but that occurs in the middle of the film with some Kabbalistic text in case you're just feeling like that's your day. Um, go to our website, akkadishforbernimadoff.com. Sign up for our mailing list. You'll be very forcefully prompted as soon as you get there. And, um, and pay attention to where we're going to be festival-wise. We're just beginning really our festival run. Um, the next festival we'll be at uh, will be the SF Jewish Film Festival, which is at the end of July, early August. Um, and then after that, a lot more. We'll be in the festival zone probably until about this time or a little sooner next year. And then we hope to be publicly released in hopefully 2022. Oh, that is so cool. I'm really excited to see it in real life. Can well. you imagine on a screen? So that would least. just freak us out. The one bummer about this moment for film festivals, it's incredible to be a part of them. And, and we were very lucky because uh, Madoff passed away after our first film festival and before our second film festival. And the title of the film for those after his death has been a little, there's moments that can be confusing for some thinking that we're setting out to celebrate Madoff and, mm -hmm. you know, find peace in his death with a Kaddish. But no, it was meant to be more of an excommunication so we that's part of our story is to remind people actually it really this film takes place when he was alive um so that's important this has been so fun thank you Yay. so much thank, thank you guys so thanks for religion hey thanks for listening weirdos we have been normalizing weirdness since 1987 <laughs> now it's not weird anymore <laughs> Yes, it is. For extras on subjects covered in this episode and other related jokes, don't forget to follow us on the socials and visit our website, weirdreligion.com. We're doing our own production these days and our own sound flourishes, but our official theme music is still by Cassie Blum. And our album artwork is by John Williams. When you podcast, podcast with us. See ya. Bye. Did that feel like an okay ending? <laughs> Did we forget anything? We did, tend to did, crash land on the end. Did we half answer <laughs> anything that we need to like, fix? Yeah. I don't know. I'm always like, what yeah. did we forget?